For February 7th, 2022, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 710. Bad jazz? Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The uh, the Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We've been with you. We've been there for you. We all grew up together. When no one else was there, it's us. And if you don't come with us to the Rumble, we might uh, have to do a whole year of musical theater podcasting, and not just, <laughs> not just two weeks in a row. And if that is an incentive to come to the Rumble, I don't know what is. I'm I'm Matt Matt Crazy Matt Podcast Guy uh, and I'm here with my good friend Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Is that accurate enough? Is that is that a good <laughs> approximation That's of melodic lines of the thing that we've just experienced? Absolutely. Anyway, and yeah. and uh Mr. Mark Lee, hello. I like to be in the podcasting. I like to be in the podcasting. And uh, we're also joined by uh, Leonard Bernstein, Stan Jordan Stokes. Hello. G-O-T-I podcast. Subject the popular culture doesn't deserve. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, Mark uh, sort of nudged us to uh, have a look at Steven Spielberg's um, Remake, remake, uh, revival, maybe his take on, on West Side Story, the, uh, the play based on Rome, the classic stage musical, mid-century stage musical based on, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, uh, songs by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, uh, originally kind of conceived, choreographed, uh, directed by, uh, by, uh, Jerome Robbins, the, you know, storied famous uh broadway director of that of that era and choreographer and um and uh what what spielberg did with it it sort of came and went in 2021 and didn't make a lot of money i think i think for a bunch of reasons uh one there there is cgi punching but it's not uh it's not the kind that's very marketable these days and two is obviously it was released into the uh into the kind of the rising swell of the the omicron um coronavirus wave and that's uh you know has not been great for uh, has not been great for a lot of films, though Spider-Man seems to have done, seems to have done okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, this film, like, this film sort of came and went and was like commercially disappointing. And we'll see what it does. We'll see what it does in, in award season, but it's, uh, I I kept I don't know if you guys kept hearing reviews of it, but I kept hearing reviews that like it's great, it's awesome, mm-hmm. it's great, it's great, and uh, that did not induce me. That was not enough of an inducement to to watch it. Uh, but then uh, Mark, you tipped us over uh, into the thing. So how did you how did you come to to see this? I mean, how did you well, go to the movie theater? Aside from my ruthless conspiracy to overthrow this podcast and turn it into all musical theater all the time. So there's that, but that's, you know, that's the, the overarching plot Uh, more specifically. um, Yes. I saw the same reviews that you heard. Um, My brother-in-law saw it and uh, strongly recommended it. And he and I 
um, you know, this is a callback to last episode. He and I snickered our way through the Les Mis movie, so I think we're simpatico. We're drift compatible in um, movie musical taste. Um, so I took that recommendation strongly, and uh, my wife and I, uh, uh, on a, in a lucky day off of work, and you know, without the kids, uh, went out to see it, and uh, we were both really impressed. And like, I, I just like, I, I just like, I was like really eager to talk to you all about it because. Um, this movie is uh, no has no shortage of strong artistic choices and big ideas um, that like um, really transform the fundamental source material into something. Uh, I'm not I hesitate to say better, but certainly like contemporary and and very interesting and absolutely worthwhile uh, for discussion. It is a rich text. Uh, I mean, if there ever was one to bring to the table here, yeah, sure. It's 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 almost appropriate to speak of to it as an adaptation of a stage musical, which is an adaptation or like a take on, you know, of yeah. uh, a um, a Romeo and Juliet story. Well, Pete, I mean, you know, were you okay doing another musical given that it's all just like super optimistic, rah rah, singing and dancing, and uh, you know that uh, this this relentlessly sunny outlook on human nature. <laughs> Did it become did it become grating at some point? Oh, just the just West Side stories, just unending, just buoyant optimism for the future of humanity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what you're talking about. When when my wife asked me how the movie was and I said, Well, I didn't have fun watching it, but it was really good. <laughs> it's very bleak. It's oh, extremely bleak. You didn't have fun? I, I had, had fun a, watching it's, it. It's been a long week, Mark. <laughs> fair. Fair. I, I think it was I I I'll say this. When I looked up what time the movie was playing and I saw that The King's Man and Jackass Forever were both in the theater and I was going to go see this, I was like, <laughs> oh, this kind of sucks. <laughs> oh, OK. When you put but it but I, I will say this. I will say this. It's also because I haven't been to the theater since I saw Spider-Man and also because I wasn't really 100 percent comfortable going to the theater. But I figured like, well, Omicron around here is down like a lot. And I've got my big stack of N95 masks and uh you know, everybody's clear and we've all been tested and there's not gonna be a lot of people in this theater. So so I'll go for it. Um, and and you know what? I don't want to say that it wasn't it, it was it's just it's a this is a prestige style movie. I thought this is not similar to like In the Heights with the last uh, new movie musical that I saw where it's like number one priority is like fun time singing happy dancey time and everything else that we can like talk about or not talk about concerning it is like subsidiary to that to that desire. Um, they really tried hard to make this work and um, and it's and it's really sad. I you know what? I'll even back off of that and say that this is a tough movie to watch if you have a son. Uh, or at least I'll say that since I now have a son, I feel like this movie was tougher for me to watch than it would have been before I had a son, because this is a movie about kids whose dads aren't around getting killed. Yeah, but you're 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 already infinitely ahead of the curve. <laughs> Your son is already by having a present caring father in his life. He is he is already like it's a divide by zero situation. He is infinitely better off. Well, I'm ahead uh, of the curve, but so is my anxiety and fear of loss. <laughs> it's way ahead of the curve. Well, fair enough. Maybe, but this isn't one of the really really super bad ones, like where it's like babies getting eaten by tigers in boats, but. No. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, Pete, Pete, I have to question here how you were like, 
I don't want to see a movie about the bad things that happen to people who grow up without good father figures. I do want to see Jackass forever. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Touche. I've watched, I've been tracking a little bit of Steve O's podcast lately. Touche. Yes, that that is a very good point. So I concede the point and I cede the floor to Mr. Bernstein and Sondheim and, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know. What I was going to say is, I had already bought my dear Evan Hansen commemorative DVD to watch this weekend, and uh, sadly, we we went another direction with it. Right? So, did you that Wait, that are, one? Are you serious? No. <laughs> what what musical would be funny to say there? Like, oh man, I was really excited for us to, you know, I was really jammed. I was really jamming on my Kiss of the Spider Woman collector's CD that I uh, and I was hoping that we were going to do that one. Is there any musical that's funny in that spot? Where it would be like, oh yeah, overthinking it did a podcast about uh, uh, about um, Spider Man uh, turn off the dark. Yes, yeah, Spider Man turn off. There you go. We did one about Spider Man. I think we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw that. That was hot garbage. That was amazing. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> anyway. like this this was not hot. This was not hot garbage. No. I mean, I don't know. I think Pete, the the like you, I I had a blast watching this because okay. like there was something. I don't know. There, there are a lot of layers to it. So I'm sorry if I, if I, if this comes out a little bit of disor- d- disorganized, but like, I just love the dancing, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I love that the dancing was framed. Um, it was done, it was shot, you know, in wide shots and it was framed in a way where you could actually see the actors actually dance. You know, it wasn't like the Moulin Rouge, uh, school of, of musical montage where it was, you know, just like a cut on every spin on every, like at any time a joint or limb or body part moved at all. You have to just cut to a different angle on the, uh, on the thing. The idea that like, you know, the idea of, of like one one thing that's like good in shows is like hey let's watch highly skilled impressive people do impressive things and this like just had it had that in spades at the at the beginning and i think i don't know i think there's something there's something about the like the vitality that that uh uh, is bespeaks an appropriate word here? It, Pete, there's something about the vita- the vitality that it bespeaks to see, you know, all of the, you know, all of the like very vital, uh, largely good looking, fit young people jumping around and twirling, uh, all together that like, that just does, you know, is kind of a rush. Um, w- w- even though, even though you know it's going to be a, uh, a Romeo and Juliet story. I also say this is kind of a meta thing, but I I found it really kind of refreshing to watch something that is trying to be artistically serious and yet also crowd-pleasing in a way or maybe not. I mean it it it's a it's a serious movie. It makes demands on your attention. It's not, you know, a bunch of CGI punching. Um, though, I mean, though, you know, some of the rumbles, like some of the shots are enhanced with CGI and there is punching. So I guess it is CGI punching. That was what I meant before. But, uh, not, maybe not crowd pleasing because it's not like a popcorn movie, but, but non alienating, you know, uh, it is, it, it's, it's, it's meant to be artistically serious and non alienating. Um, 
and like it's meant to be good because it's good and not good because you're stupid or society is stupid or someone else is is uh is stupid and i i don't know i sort of i enjoyed that as well and then, then it was also like it's you know really terribly depressing uh the the way things turn out for for uh poor tony and for poor maria and 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 and, and for, for everybody else <laughs> for gino for for Bernardo <laughs> and Griff, yeah, you know, Riff, right? Or Riff? Is it Griff? Uh, Riff. There you go. Um, the, so it, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, but it's interesting that the Romeo and Juliet, like Romeo and Juliet, and it is uh, a thing about like it's a thing about society, and the representatives of society are the parents, you know, um, the the representatives, the pe- the people kind of stoking the. Uh, the fire of the hatred between the the two households, both alike in dignity, and uh, that's um, that's kind of absent here, right? Like we're supposed to read in the we're supposed to read in like racism, we're supposed to read it read in like turf war, but there there are no parents. You know, and there really is kind of the, the, one of the, de- one of the depressing aspects I, I thought the most depressing on reflection was that the, um, you know, the race war is self perpetuating. You know, it, do- it doesn't necessarily need someone standing outside it, stoking it in order to, to keep in flames. I mean, I guess the, the, um, you know, I guess the boys do themselves, the young men, but they are, um, you know, I don't know. They're, they're really not capable of pulling themselves out of the nosedive that, that they're already in, right? Like there's no specific malevolent entity, uh, pitting them against each other. It's, it's just kind of their existential condition. Like their way of being in the world is this gang war. Um, and, and the more I thought about that afterwards, I thought, uh, I thought it was, uh, it was pretty bleak, but you know, man, there was some good dancing, you know, the nice costumes. I really, man, I want to bring back high waisted pants for men. Like, hey, 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 there is an outside villain stoking all the tensions in this. It's Robert Moses. I'm only, <laughs> I'm only half joking. Can, can we do there a little history, history sidebar here? <laughs> there you go. Like this is. I feel like this is the thi- the unseen the unseen forces of history kind of thing. Like in in Disney's Encanto, you know the the big evil is colonialism. Uh, the, the, the the kind of the unseen villain in this. Sure, the unseen uh, the unseen villain is is Robert Moses. Mark, can you expand on that a little bit oh, for geez. us? Okay, so uh, this is. Mark, uh, you, you don't happen here, to but... be—you don't happen to be really devoted to the works of Robert Caro, do you? Oh, you could say I dabble a bit. Yes, I'm a super fan, super fan. I read all his books, except for the the, the, the short one that came out recently. Ironically, okay. <laughs> Other important context is that the as well. vamp- erotic vampire story he wrote. <laughs> no, he does those under the name Anne Rice. That's oh, the... okay. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, Other important context. Uh, is that um uh, as i think i've mentioned in, in this uh on this podcast before i live in the lincoln center neighborhood so this is all like literally happening in my backyard okay so context um original stage show and the 1961 version of this movie take place like kind of contemporaneous with 
um, the quote unquote slum clearance project um, that uh, is depicted in in the movie, right? You know, uh, the new movie, uh, you know, raises um, historical neighborhoods, including San Juan Hill, a Puerto Rican neighborhood, uh, to make way for Lincoln Center and notably um, public housing projects uh, kind of immediately behind Lincoln Center. Um, so, Fast forward many years later, um, what we've come to see and is not at all present in the 1961 movie is the kind of horrific realization that um, some clearance didn't work, um, that there was this you know, horrible human human cost to it. And well, really, the, we just wound up creating a new slum, which is the um, dilapidated and um, under-maintained uh, public housing complex that sits immediately behind Lincoln Center. Um, and so the the new movie leans into this idea quite tremendously in um, framing all this as an apocalypse. Um, you have uh, this uh, uh, passing imagery and passing mentions of nuclear fallout. Did you notice that was the fallout shelter symbols, uh, signs that are posted in multiple locations in, the, in this? Um, there's a detail there. Uh, there's um, specific mentions of World War III, weapons of mass destruction. Um, so it, it also pulls in the Cold War historical context, but again, most importantly, this idea that uh, this neighborhood is undergoing an apocalypse. Uh, a bomb is essentially being dropped in it, and there, there's just like human wreckage strewn all about. Um, that is like a, a very, very short. Oh, and Robert Moses was the uh, uh, was one of the main, you know, the, the notorious and powerful city planner uh, of that era was one of the main driving forces for all of this. Um, so one other thing, and then I'll, I'll uh, and I'll hand this over, is that like ironically, right? You know, the Lincoln Center complex, you know, uh, feels like very tied into the legacy of Leonard Bernstein himself, right? You know, a conductor of the New York Philharmonic, um, towering figure in the New York art scene, and you know, his works um, are, are uh, with some regularity performed in the Lincoln Center complex. So it, it, it's all uh, intertwined in there, and it just makes a really compelling historical context, and and. Uh, and kind of looking back and and, and thinking of, uh, skeptically uh, about, you know, quote unquote, remaking Lincoln, uh, West Side Story. It's like, well, why do that again in, in 2021? Well, this is kind of the reason why it, it gains quite a lot by being reframed as a period piece um, and being able to look back at this period um, with hindsight. So th- that I just put a ton of stuff on the table there. I don't know if anyone want to pick up any of the threads um, that I left dangling for you. One thing that's kind of striking about that is that. Um, it makes West Side Story into kind of a version of In the Heights, because In the Heights is a, a musical where, like, to the degree that there's a plot, it's that there is this uh, this this neighborhood that is being sort of swept up and blowing away, and everybody's dealing with that, right, in their own ways. Various characters right, have, right. like, little vignettes about how they're handling it, right? Um, in... In the original movie and in the the stage musical, like that stuff is nowhere on the table, right? Exactly. I, I certainly yeah. don't remember it. Um, it's more like, hey, we all remember Romeo and Juliet, where there are these feuding families. Well, New York gangs are kind of like that, and that's that's about all the specificity that there is. So it's it's weird because In the Heights is very much, I, I've got to think. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda having a like a strong misreading of West Side Story. It's him saying like, well, no, if you want to talk about a Latino community in New York, like this is what that's actually like 
right? Um, so the notion that then you have hot on the heels of that, really, I mean, in, in the way that these things play out, a version of West Side Story that tries to incorporate that central theme of In the Heights uh, is, you know, it'll make for a tidy master's thesis at some point for someone down the road, at least. Right. The, but the, I wonder... Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, what was it? What were you going to end with? Well, I mean, I, I wonder, like, I, I wonder how well the romance plot of West Side Story lines up with this, like, broader community reckoning of... Um, of in the heights right that like there, there's not a, a central person whose desires drive the plots plot exactly and in the heights if anything it's like kind of plotless which could be a weakness but it's also just like just the way that it works and if you think about what happens when you have a, a big problem in urbanism right uh you you can do the in a world gone mad two young people have the hots for each other right like that that's a story that's been done uh, many times but the idea of it actually landing so that the central romantic relationship connects to that uh you know to the hindenburg or whatever it is that's happening in the background is is like pretty hard to stick the landing and i'm curious whether you all feel What's like that, it did what is that case. robert pattinson movie Remember me? I was just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. The same, the same thing. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was like, we were both thinking of the same Robert the, Pattinson movie. There's a, I mean, there's a really interesting thing, Jordan, that happens that happens in the dynamic that that you and Mark are teasing out, which is that like maybe maybe the problems of of two people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy mixed up world, you know that like uh, that actually the 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 real enemy well it's it seems it's much more malevolent than gentrification uh, that it's talked about in in the heights, but the 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 real enemy is this this economic upheaval and like there's a, there's a certain amount of of false consciousness around you know thinking that like your gang war matters or that your your falling in love matters uh matters at all but i mean to to a certain extent there's like there's a million story it's it's one of those there's a million stories in the naked city things and the the question is one of of scope right like how far in are you uh how far in are you zoomed in and if you zoom out you know if you zoom out so far that, you know, the opening shots of the, of this movie are, you know, block upon block, acre upon acre of, of, you know, vacant lots full of rubble from, uh, apartment, uh, apartment buildings that have been demolished, then like, d- does it, I don't know, does it undercut the, the love story somewhat? That's a, is sort of an interesting, interesting way to think which about is it. interesting when you think about it as a romeo and juliet story because of course there's different ways to read romeo and juliet or at least what i think of as the way that at least in my experience comes from the play and then the way that comes from the play it resonated with everybody right which is that romeo and juliet is a tragic story about two kids who have a really stupid idea because they're kids that gets them all killed sure. right which is that love should happen regardless of their social situation right and but then there's this the sort of strong misreading of that I guess at times it's a weak misreading, but the strong misreading of it, which is that love should happen despite the like Romeo and Juliet should get to be together, not Romeo and Juliet are stupid teenagers who don't understand the consequences of their actions because there are adults living vicariously through them who should be preventing them from doing it, but aren't right. Like, like they are, they're full of energy and they're full of life and they're full of youth and, and they're put into a situation that they don't entirely understand. I mean, so more than that, I mean, 
even more than the Romeo and Juliet story, I felt like to me this felt like a Saving Private Ryan story. You know, it opens because it's, it's Spielberg, right? Opens like Saving Private Ryan with the uh, with the sort of wasteland, right? The no man's land and the machines that are sort of waiting there, depopulated, and and then you have the 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 boys rush into it in their formation and kind of hide behind things and like climb into things and they're getting around stuff. Uh, and the way that they sort of walk through this graveyard of buildings and then kind of march through the streets in their show of power, but 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 still reminds you that they're just boys, right? Um, it it definitely felt to me like the big story here was more about the 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 just the sort of at this point the momentum and inevitability of the tragic loss of life and loss of social stability and loss of opportunity for for a better for a somewhere. That that continues to happen uh, for a variety of complex reasons, um, and the love story just felt to me kind of ancillary. Although I will I will say one other thing, um, and I don't I hate I hate when this happens on the podcast where somebody opens up a field of conversation then immediately closes it and moves on to something else. I've I never really I've never seen West Side Story before, but I've heard the music a lot, and I never felt like Tony and Maria in that music felt to me like a credible heterosexual couple. Because I could never shake the idea that somewhere is about being gay and closeted. Um, maybe that's because I knew it was Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> right? But like, did am I the only person who's ever like thought that this was about true about them? That they don't feel t- like a like a guy and a girl that are into each other, and that it's like sort of things are being spoken through them, kind of in code about other things. Um, I mean, that's that. It's definitely true of a lot of Broadway. Thing, yeah, you know, that, I think that's not a controversial thing to say. Being that, like, I think I that guy say, really I, likes dudes and is only pretending <laughs> to like that lady so that he doesn't get in trouble. <laughs> like, like they, they definitely feel like the male and female lead of a musical who are really into each other. Whether that yeah. con- conflicts with what you're saying <laughs> is fair. <laughs> not, not, again, touche, touche. That's fine. <laughs> But I mean, you know, like, uh, and, and Bernstein too, right. It's, it's, uh, not yep. totally clear whether he was gay or bi, but like he, he, you know, he definitely could write yearning melodies and that was part of what the yearning was about, uh, for, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I always feel like Tony and Maria, they land to me. I feel like they're mm-hmm. actually into each other, uh, somewhere like in particular, like, yeah, that it's very hard to avoid reading it that way once you've heard it that way. But like tonight, tonight, you know, as a like this date is going really well song has has always worked for me. Yeah, I've just I just came into this movie with too negative a mentality because I hear all that stuff and it's like terrible things going to happen to you, man. <laughs> like, like, oh, man, something great's going to happen to me tonight. No, it's not. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. Go home, study hard, go to trade school, go repair adding machines, <laughs> like get out of this whole situation. It's <laughs> irony, dramatic <laughs> irony. Tonight there will be no subtext. <laughs> it's irony. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's interesting. Somewhere, uh, Jordan, I, I'm not. I think you didn't didn't finish the film, but in this version, you know, Rita Moreno plays this new character who uh, uh, is kind of a what say a kind of a Switzerland. She's kind of non combatant in. Uh, a lot of this stuff and a lot of, a lot of people can sort of talk to her. She moves in, can, can talk to, to people from both sides. And she actually sings somewhere. Uh, and as a kind of like, uh, 
forlorn, hopeless, uh, you know, when, when will these kids stop fighting each other? When will, yeah. when, when, when will we have a society that can, you know, uh, give love room to flourish? You know, when, when will the Puerto Rican diaspora find a home that like it can yeah. fully realize itself in? Right. And not, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it really puts uh, um, the political, that political message of the movie, like just, it, it nails it, 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 it bashes it on the head. Um, it's, it's like a little bit like too obvious. I, I thought that's like a very, very light complaint um, of that particular artistic choice. Um, you know, making it more about uh, the broader racial politics as opposed to like the, uh, you know, the more intimate um, love song presentation that it had in the 61 version. But it does, anyway. you know, it does. And you don't get like, like hot and heavy kissing with, you don't get like a love scene in the way that might like really make the romance plot you know, muscular, like really make it, you know, really make it land. Just two muscular dudes just make it out. <laughs> just muscular, you know, like just like, this is, this is a, so this is like a, a little autobiography corner that I have to go into because they did do West Side Story uh, at my local high school. Like it was several, <laughs> several years ahead of me. Right. So I was like in middle school, like just coming online as it were, as like the whole mystery of love and sex. Uh, like, you know, you all remember being a boy going through that. Right. And we I blocked it out went, like Grogu. No, sorry. <laughs> we, we went to see it. Right. And it was like on the, the last day that the show was running, um, and the person who was playing Tony, who was a senior and didn't care anymore, right? Uh, there was there was a scene where uh, he and Maria were going to like uh, the lights come up and they're in her bedroom, right? And uh, I think it was maybe when they were going to sing tonight tonight. But anyway, like he as a hilarious gag, uh, when the lights came up, he was like in bed, like buttoning his flies back up. Right. Uh, and this to me made a, a huge impression. I was like, they did what? Maybe, maybe this is why I'm like, oh yeah. Like Tony and Maria, they got down. <laughs> because, like, that, was, that was just like imprinted on me at this very awesome. tender age. Dramaturgy, man. <laughs> that's, that's like dramaturgy 101 right there. That's, that's a really strong choice. Definitely. That's yeah. great. That's awesome. It made an impression. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, so this this is a, a movie that the not the not the libretto, but the book or right is that how we would characterize it? What portion of the movie has been remade by Tony Kushner the, the, into like a cautionary tale about cycles of violence? The and, libretto, like, the libretto, or the book, the the spoken parts of the musical. What you, what but you but mean, as you know? distinct from the lyrics, right? Yeah. Like the 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 plot, the parts that are talked about that aren't the lyrics, just songs uh, uh, of the music. But yeah. What's interesting is that, like, so it seems like they changed the the book a bunch to try to make it more more socially conscious, right? For, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, um, but like, the thing is that the music in West Side Story tells a story too, and I don't feel like it's possible to like to actually make a version of West Side Story that is. Uh, that is socially conscious in the way that they want to, with the music doing what it does. Mm. So th this is something that like I've I've thought about this show a lot, a lot because I love the music. I mean, I'm I really do like Bernstein a lot, um, but there's like the way that it's structurally in there is kind of difficult because the sharks, right? They have their music that is clearly the shark music, 
and it's all this this Latin stuff, sort of like enhanced polyrhythmic uh, Latin music that Bernstein writes very very well. You know, the uh, the dance sequence is always a highlight, the mambo stuff, right? Um, but then, like, the Jets have their music too, right? And what does the Jet music sound like? It sounds like you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. It's it, sa- uh, it sounded jazzy. to me like a slightly like a sure jazzy, but also just like very slight influences of like Stravinsky or something like that. Because there were these like dissonant clashes and big stings and hits uh and stuff. And I, I just had that I had that I had the sense that I was in the presence of the twentieth century. Yeah, yeah, I sort of felt like we're like at the at like a fictional nightclub in a pulpy, uh, you know, detective action thriller. (laughs) And and like somebody in a couple of white tuxes is like playing while there's a fight going on over the tables. There's like a art deco panache to it. Yeah. Well, and like the, the person who'd be playing in that white tux is like Cab Calloway or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, I, I, I I did this for my students once and asked like, what does the jet music sound like? And one of them, those sort of apostles was like bad jazz. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing is, it's, it's true, right? That pitch structure, famously the uh, the music of Polish immigrants, right? I've read the Jungle by Upton Sinclair. The tap dancing number down the stairs is the best part. The jet music is African-American music. There's no African-Americans in the movie, but like that's the music of the jets. That's their flavor. And then as... Tony and Maria like exit those worlds, these ethnically marked worlds in the music. And they both go on to, you know, to the better place. You're supposed to think that Tony is the one who's trying to get out to leave the gang banging behind and sort of like have a, a good productive life of some kind. And to a certain degree, the same is true of Maria, although with her, it's more like she's just into Tony, right? So he sort of seduces her out of being Puerto Rican. Um, and the music that they sing yeah, yeah. And the music that they sing is like, it's not intended to be heard this way because that's the way whiteness works. But they, the music that they sing is the whitest music in the show, right? The, the Something like, the sort of like religioso topic that is running around in one hand, one heart, and the beginning of the Maria song, right? Da, 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 I ever heard, right? All of that stuff is, I mean, it's Broadway, right? But unmarked Broadway communicates whiteness in a way that the rest of the music decidedly doesn't. Like, I don't think that that's, I don't think that at any point Bernstein or anybody else walking around with the show was was saying like, oh, okay, and like as they become better and uh, more in love with each other and more moving forward to some kind of higher purpose, we'll make them sound whiter because that's the the message I want to put forward. But like at the end of the day, the music does what it does, right? Whether that's that's what they were thinking or not. That's ideology. It's the air you breathe. It's not like what you, you know, you don't think. (laughs) You don't like think to, to do it. It's just what is the music of the love song, the... Uh, the love songs and it's it's I mean the the music we're talking about is like tonight tonight uh, Maria one hand one heart um, to a certain extent I I feel pretty because like uh, I feel pretty is sung by Maria and her you know uh, cadre of of also sort of Puerto Rican women but it's not like America where there's dancing it's it's you know and it, the film puts it in a in a department store where they're you know where they're cleaning it uh after hours and um it's they're they're sort of like 
it's this this play acting you know what i mean it's this like larping whiteness uh as they like as maria sort of tries on all of the expensive um, clothing items and like, it's like, Oh, I have this like $17 and 89 cent, you know, silk scarf around and I feel pretty. Oh, so pretty. Um, that's one of the songs actually that like in later years, it became a sort of thing of, of Stephen Sondheim's to sort of criti- criticize some of his own lyric writing, uh, on this. Um, and he was like, yeah, she's a 17 or 18 year old yeah. girl. And she sounds like Dorothy Parker at the Algonquin or Oscar Wilde, yeah. like making, <laughs> making like these clever bonbons in the, in the, like the rhyming, uh, you know, in rhyming couplets. And it just doesn't, it's not, way, a, yeah. Yeah. I should add that notably the, uh, the revival of West Side Story, uh, that was on playing on Broadway, uh, at, uh, at 2020 when the, when the pandemic struck and shut Broadway down, uh, they'd actually cut that number from the production altogether oh. and i thought that they were going to do so um in this one as well so when that number comes on i was like well i'm i'm, I'm happy to hear this but i'm also like it's, it's a, again it's a strong creative choice Anyone everything else the, the cameo by nicole kidman as lucille ball in that scene <laughs> you're talking about with the mannequins <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah i thought that as well yeah <laughs> sorry just throwing that in there little little being the ricardo's callback <laughs> never mind for <laughs> sorry mark i interrupted you I, I mean so let's 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 talk to address the I point mean, that jordan brought up about like the the wokeness or the lack thereof of of the of the of the music um and the obstacle that it presents to the sort of like full racial reckoning that the movie appears to strive towards like i don't know i have to sit and and, and think about that like it, it's i think it's impossible to for me to kind of um objectively try to assess all that and all those contradictions because i think we're all in agreement here right the music is just so masterful and just like so it it it, it moves you it it, it and that's the other thing is it absolutely you know communicates what it's trying to communicate so well um and that also speaks to like our frankly our own positions of privilege right our own cultural back backgrounds where like you know we can like groove to the latin uh the the, the latin tunes um and like internalize that as as something other that's like that's not our culture but like you know it's something exotic and, and like and is having that intended effect on us like you can't just i just can't step away from my own background to try to assess it Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there is a spot there that's particularly difficult to navigate, which I might refer to as the Ma Grimm's ever-loving thing space, which is like, you guys remember what uh, what Ben Grimm was before he was a member of the Fantastic Four? Uh, he's a member of the Yancey Street Gang down on 2nd Avenue. Um, there's this, I mean, you could also sort of call it Newsies chic. There's this sort of like blurry, blendery notion of a sort of pre-white white gang kid in New York City. It's sort of a Gangs of New York uh, is a sort of uh, one end of the, one islet, one, ag- one uh, aglet of the shoelace on this, right? Where it's like, uh, because, I mean, we talked about this before, I think on some of the podcasts, where, at least growing up in New Jersey, I felt very cognizant of the fact that the immigrant groups came through in waves and the positions in society would be held by different immigrant groups at different times. The positions would stay the same, but the immigrant groups would change. And as such, you had certain archetypes, which in one period would have one ethnicity associated with them and in another period would have a different ethnicity associated with them. And it gets really hard. So, yeah. This is like the thing where you have all of these Arab-run pizza places, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. because the way it goes is that the pizza places are founded by 
um, Italians, right? Well, so first the Northern Italians come over, then the Southern Italians come over. They bring, they have the the Neapolitan pizza. But then when they re- they retire and move to New Jersey, the Albanians take over because they grew up close to Italy and know Italian food and cuisine and culture. So they can come in and do that, right? And then now they're training people who are Arabian, middle you know, Middle Eastern immigrants uh, or you know Latin American immigrants in that. And so like the yeah the different. And in Greeks too, right? Greeks have pizza, and then that also has, you know, Middle Eastern connections. Where it's like, oh, is it jai? Is it falafel? Is it souvlaki? You know, everything yeah. kind of goes back and forth. Um, and the, the nice yeah. thing is that the pizza stays good all through this. And but it's like true. The, <laughs> and the, the immigrant groups like run the restaurant until they until their kids can get some other kind of job, right? And yeah. you know, in, in, in an ideal world, there's a, a version of this which is a very kind of hopeful, wonderful story. Well, there is a there is a a positive quality of the American economy, which is that it works really well if everybody moves about once every like 20 or 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, there's this really negative thing about human beings where we're very loss averse. So if we're not moving to someplace we see as better uh, and we also get very protective of our homes, we get extremely angry. Right. So it's sort of like um I mean, I, I mean, I'm not really joking about the whole economic thing. It's like the story of America is a story of a whole bunch of once you get past the sort of initial founding of the country and all that to the point where, like, you know, 95 percent of the population are descended from immigrants who came here in the last like 200 years. Right. And it's like uh, um, I mean, and, and again, of course, that also means a ton of overlap, ton of intermarriage. Maybe it's not 90, maybe it's 90 percent in some way are related to people who were nowhere near here in 1776. Right. And it's and people have been moving back and forth all over the place. Like, oh, you know, my parents, they grew up in, you know, my parents are from, you know, my mom was from the Bronx and then she was in New Jersey. And then I'm in Boston and my sister's in California and I'm another sister in Denver. And like they are all those cousins are all, you know, one cousin removed away from each other. But they're thousands of miles away. Um, You know, and how many times will we move? And I, I mean, as somebody who has been forced out of a home by economic situations, it's extremely distressing. Right. Like super duper duper extremely distressing to be forced out of your room, by, out of your home by the economy. But I've also voluntarily changed homes because of the economy like seven times. And each of those times was more or less fine. And so there's like really weird asymmetry to the American economy that really inf- I mean, particularly for me, informs the New York story where it's like it works great as long as it's almost like a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> but it's also sort of called, you know, the human race because like, you know, the people at the top of the Ponzi scheme keep dying. <laughs> and so like, cause it's like, you know, it's unfortunately being in a Ponzi scheme has a mortality rate of hundred percent given enough time, but you know what I mean? Right. It's like, um, you know, you move and then they move and then they move and each new generations like uh, movement to a nicer place is subsidized in part by the new generation of immigrants coming in and doing all this work. Um, and of course, then you get into the retrenchment of the, uh, overarching, you know, social and racial hierarchies that prevent certain people from being able to move and make it allow other people to be able to move. And then that's super duper unfair. Um, but I guess, I mean, I'm sorry, I got way off track of, of this, of this whole story of uh, West side story. But like, the point is that, um, that the American a- economy is a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> all economies are a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> sure, it's, but not exactly. 
because Ponzi schemes, because if you put in if you put in work and not just money, then and you get paid for it, then that's just exploitation. And that's just that's just you know the 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 wages of sin or death and whatnot. But like, uh, but the point is that there is an archetype of the white gangster that is like nebulously exists in time. The white New York gang kid, tough kid from New York, right? Which is sort of out of Charles Dickens, sort of out of like uh, Newsies, right? Sort of the little rascals or the dead end kids, right? Out of like the 30s, the 30s silent film or the the 20s and 30s, like uh, low grade movies and stuff. Um, and, and it's just once you get into the actual, you know, ethnography of it, which might be the wrong word, but the micro history of it, who were these people? When did they live there? When did they leave? And you're making a movie in and about the 60s where like your gang archetypes are like from the 20s. It's just it's it's hard to then transpose that to the 2020s and be like, are we really telling a story still that's like being responsible with what's actually happening at any given point? Right. Because um, none of these people yeah. have the Internet. This, Nobody knew what was going on. So, yeah, and this, I think, speaks to like one of the one of the incoherencies of the music, which is that the Jets don't have a musical style that they could plausibly call their own. Right. No, no, that, no. Like that, that instead they get uh, they get this sort of denatured African-American music. Yeah. Um, and like it also this is always kind of the thing with West Side Story is that it sort of frames itself as, OK, so there's going to be these two street gangs and they're both. They're both other, in a sense, to each other. And like, give it credit. There's like the Puerto Rican characters in this are allowed to have opinions about things and want things and pass judgment on things. And like, you, you care about them, and they're fully realized people. And that's not like, especially if you go back to was like the late fifties, right when West Side Story comes out. That has not always been the case. Yeah. So like, we, we need to, we need to to be careful, like exactly how how hard we judge it. But um, definitely, when you look at the Jets versus the Sharks, it ends up being like the Jets are the normal ones and the Sharks yeah. are the other ones. And right. then that also gets mapped onto the gender thing, right? That like Tony's the guy uh, and Maria's the girl. Uh, she is this sort of like exotic treasure for him to covet and possess and seduce etc etc not that she's not into him but like it's that that like the way that uh gender maps on to ethnic difference there is like certainly certainly not accidental like you you wouldn't you wouldn't think to do it the other way right or i can't think of an example of it going the other way in any movie that i know of um and like it it seems to me that Oh, <laughs> yeah, yes, actually, yes. <laughs> which is uh, which is a an not not an endorsement. The rule. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that Jupiter, I think that people are going to come around on Jupiter ascending. I think give it another ten years. <laughs> the musical remake that Spielberg is yeah. working on right now is going to be Bella. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Jupiter ascending should have been a musical. Yes. If it was a musical, oh, it would have yes. worked. This is, the best, this is the best take I've heard, like in in, in so many years. years. And when 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 people it up the other day uh, the other day a couple minutes <laughs> it seems like the other day we've moved on so far but i just want to point out that being the ricardos is not not a musical it's uh it's got a lot of uh it's got a lot of babalu in it um a lot of a lot of band leader stuff i mean hey jordan i thought there were there were sort of two more musical modes i i was kind of wrong to to uh kind of identify necessarily the dissonant crashing 
um, maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's one with, with, with sort of two faces. Um, the, uh, the dissonant crashing with the Jets music, because you're right. It's the, it's the kind of really stilted kind of jazz melodies, you know, uh, that, that are the Jets music. But there is this like dissonant crashing, giant chords, cymbal crashes, you know, highly percussionized, bump, 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 uh, kind of kind of dance music as well and then like the the like um the reeds like the the fight music <laughs> seems like it's all this like like clarinet and bassoon or or uh you know the, the stuff like do 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 you know as they're like circling each other and and stuff like that i mean does does this fit into your your sort of schema uh of the music or is there a, am i wrong to identify a, a sort of different a third uh a third and a fourth or a 3a and 3b kind of musical language going on as well I mean, no, I think that stuff is definitely there. I think that that's um, a little more art music-y, right? Yeah, in, in a way, like that's uh, that is the Bernstein like background character, the puppet master, sort of standing above the stage and reaching down. And it's like, okay, now I'm going to put on my my shark glove and play some Puerto Rican music, and I'm going to put on my jet glove and do some jet music. But then when uh, you know. When I'm speaking in my own voice, it's this. Uh, yeah, I mean, Stravinsky is the the obvious um, sort of main source for that. Although by the time it got to Bernstein, it had already gone through a whole bunch of things, and you can find that in like in a ton of his other music. As a lot well. of dumbing, a lot of dumbing down. By that that point, I say I only say Stravinsky oh. because my my own sense of it, my my own references in this area are you know unsophisticated or underdeveloped. But like that's I mean, the I one I know. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say dumbing down. I just mean that like it, by the time it had become like a grammar, right? That lots of people did. And Bernstein is, I mean, Bernstein is really really good at it and puts tremendous demands on his orchestra like if you if you play in pits i I never did this but i talked to some people who did like west side story is fun but it's hard and the reason that it's hard is because the time signatures they do not hang out for very long (laughs) (laughs) they are constantly being uh robert moses is kicking them out (laughs) a new time signature is coming in there'd be a big wrecking ball coming into the middle of the four four measures splitting it into different shards of sub subdivisions and and uh stuff like that that's you know that's that's interesting this this the music in this conducted by gustavo dudamel um the the musical director of the los angeles phil um you know uh who is who comes out of the uh el sistema the uh what venezuelan uh, uh national youth orchestra like feeder farm team feeder system that they have yeah. And I mean, Dudamel is a, a real talent, you know, and, and uh, does Bernstein in particular very, very well. I feel like so. I, I do feel like, uh, Jordan, we pioneered in Los Angeles, the T-shirt orchestra conductor, you know, Esa Pekka Salonen in the 80s, like really, <laughs> really looking good, like skinny in a black T-shirt, like kind of like throwing his hands with the baton up in the air, eyes closed, mouth slightly open as though in meditation with his back slightly arched and you can imagine the the music he was he was conducting um i feel i, I you know i feel like uh like 
Duhamel is a little more um, a little more warm. He's a little more engaging, but he is also like just an excellent t-shirt conductor. And by the way, he was 27 when he got the job in Los Angeles. In case you ever felt good about anything you've accomplished in your life, ever anyone podcasting or listening together, um, I just d- drop in that. Uh, yeah, and and you know also it's yeah it's having the opportunity to see him is is amazing at the the Disney Hall and the Hollywood Bowl is a, is a, a powerhouse. Um, and they they sound they sound really good. I I had a thought about sort of Officer Krupke. Uh, that like, what, how, how do you feel the boys do as analysts of the, of the, their own social predicament, uh, in, in this Pete, did you like, did it, did it? I love this song. Yeah. It was I, wonderful. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I the way they, the, the way they staged it in this was wonderful. Yeah. And I, I felt like I had, I had always assumed that it was, Again, something like out of Newsies or, you know, a bad production of, of Oliver or something where like the kids all just yell at the authority figure, the whole Officer Krupke thing. I didn't realize that it was a pretty interesting indictment of the, the, the system, right, is what it is. It's it's I did. I did wish through a lot of this that the detective was played by uh, Dominic West. I think that would have really put the cherry <laughs> on top. <laughs> The F did I do? Uh, but the the idea that the kids are throwing back in the faces of the authority figures who have been in succession talking to them their entire lives, uh, the the process of handing them off from person to person, right? It's like each particular authority figure, because they presumably because they don't want to deal with this kid or they don't know how to deal with this kid, they have no way of dealing with this kid because they're not their parent, right? And they don't have that kind of relationship with them, and their ability to do anything is somewhat limited punts them off to the next person. Although they also do it out of compassion, right? It's like, well, we shouldn't really send them to prison. It could be a good kid. We'll go send him to the social worker and, you know, send it to this person, send it to that person. And then it, it sort of comes around and around when the social worker's like, I can't do anything with this kid, right? You know, you got to send him to jail or send him back to the police. Um, and it's, it's uh, what it sounded like to me, especially with the staging of the kids playing the different figures with the different furniture organizations, which is really what makes it right. How each different civil station has its own orientation of tables and chairs. It was, it was very, uh, very uh, Batman begins, right? Was that Batman begins where the, we talk about the scarecrow piling up all the tables? Oh no, that's dark Knight rises. No, it's dark. Knight the scarecrow rises. has to yeah. pile it, up the, the Cause tables. it's after the, it's after the urban apocalypse, you know? Yes, exactly. So just like in West side story, Uh, In the urban apocalypse, they pile up a bunch of tables and put the authority figures on top of the different tables in different configurations to talk about, oh, their wisdom of what should happen to these kids. And there is a really fine ambiguity here. And I think it's a it's a it's there's a unity to it, which is both beautiful and terrible, which is that on one hand, the the system wants to try to do something with these kids, but can't figure out how to do it. And their their inefficacy in doing anything has become a joke. But then also the kids in invoking the system, you get the sense are not just joking about the system being bad, but are also using it to get away with a more basic sort of ill intention. You know, they're they're getting away with something and it's not innocent, Uh, at least not in this movie. In this movie, they're getting away with basically running a neo-Nazi street gang. Right. That like is is like just just like a little bit away from killing all of the Hispanic kids in their neighborhood. 
right? Like, like I mean, these are they, serious they do try, bad they, kids. They do is try that? to they do try to gang rape Anita. Yes, yeah, that is yes. like which is like just kind of like gesture towards um, in the 1961 movie, but made like very very explicit. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it removes any shadow of doubt what it is they're trying to do. So that that is like that is a fascinating turn, right? Contrast, right? Yeah. You know, these same kids who are prancing around singing the officer Crufty Crufty song, who who like seems to suggest they have some self awareness about um, themselves, their station in life, their 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 circumstances and things like that, and just like you know, by the end of the movie, completely go over to this uh, depraved animal instinct. Um, it it. it you know, like on one hand, like you'd say, like wow, that's a that's a tonal shift there. But um, the fact that the movie can do both of these things here is really a testament to both the source material and how Spielberg has interpreted all of it. Well, there's also yeah. there's been a double murder, like at this point, like it, 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 stuff has really deteriorated. At the, you oh know, yeah, at, no, at not, this at the, point. not at the point when they sing Doctor Krupp, the Officer Krupp. Oh no, 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 yeah, yeah, before, no, 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 pre rumble no, uh, post rumble, yeah, it's. Uh... Well, because in so many of the joke interpretations of West Side Story that base it off the movie, like the Saturday Night Live sketch <laughs> where the, the dancing gang gets stabbed, I think, and beaten up by the gang that just brought weapons or guns or something. Um, the dancing is not a dance of kind of youthful, exuberant, celebratory innocence and the sort of flower of youth. It is the dance of testosterone and like group vigor that that is sort of raging and does not have a quality of self-control that is relevant to it, especially in groups. Right. It's like the da- the, the sort of kinetic, physical, you know, uh, you know, sort of writhing, lurching, lunging dance of these boys is a dance of sort of it's sort of a ritual dance of summoning violence. And uh, and and you know that this was also what made the be cool number for me feel so sort of ill portent and and great right and 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 definitely great but like you know man you you're trying to ask this kid to calm down when he's like surrounded by only things that agitate him and only people who mirror back his agitation to him and his general state of arousal and also even the song itself is arousing. Right. And uh, in a general sense. Right. Or in a Sunheimian or Bernsteinian sense as well. Um, you know, there's some Goku and Vegeta stuff going on. It's they talk each other Superman and Batman. Their moms are both named Martha, I guess. I don't know what. A lot a lot of flatted fit. A lot of, a lot of tritones. And, and, you know, as we know, it is uh, Diabolus and Musica. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I just want to say, like, I think that that is an accomplishment. Like, I thought the choreography was really was really good, really effective in this in in a whole bunch of different vernaculars but then to to like to find a sort of movement vocabulary in the musical theater vernacular that like it's recognizably musical theater dance like you know like contemporary ballet influenced or sort of jazz dance influenced like musical theater dance you know mm-hmm. um that uh, and 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 yet it manages to be really i don't know really tough like really non um uh, I don't know, really non-arty, like really visceral, like a very, I, I don't yeah. know. I thought it was, I thought it was like really well, well choreographed and really well danced by that. And I noticed it from the first thing, like as the, the, the jets are assembling, like one by one, they do this little, like, as they're kind of strutting down the street, one by one, they do this little shoulder shrug, um, 
And I think that that riff is the last one. Riff is the last one to do it. And he does the shoulder shrug. His, his arms kind of flip out in front of him and then he makes like fists and you see, Oh yeah, this is where this was going all along. You know, like this was the, the preparate, the kind of the loosening up to fight. Um, and that like that it's, it's both a like little, it's a little ballet move. And then it ends in that. I don't know. I just thought it was a good kind of bridging of those, um, of those vocabularies. But uh, by the way, this feeling of that, these like sweaty, grimy, bloody dancers in their sort of piss and vinegar, like youthful, just non-specified shotgun blast of their, of themselves and their violent urges all over the world that they're like echoing to each other and compounding in this crucible of this apocalypse is precisely the motivation that is ascribed by everyone to Mr. Bates in season five of Downton Abbey. And, and it's, it's not credible for Mr. That's what, this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like Mr. Bates. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't, what, it doesn't have a bowler hat. (laughs) He's a man. He can't be controlled. (laughs) His urges, his desire for violence. What will Bates do? What will Bates do if he finds out? He will probably walk slowly and then, like, kind of look a little bit side to side. He'll move his eyes without moving his head. They'll sit down. He'll stand up. Ba-da-ba-da-ba. He's got a really, he's got a really Sorry. hangdog so, expression. We're, we're talking about all this dance and leading up, you know, it portending violence. And of course, like by the time the rumble uh, arrives, like, well, you know, the, the violence just like just uh, explodes, right? Um, it's, it's a devastating consequence. Um, now, remind me. In the 2021 version of it, right, the 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 rumble is not at all danced. I think it's like presented as a pretty gritty and realistic street brawl. Um, in the like 1960- seated by Michael Jackson, yeah. <laughs> right. In the 1961 <laughs> version, though, if I recall correctly, like there is still like a um, the, the the dance framework still applies to the climactic rumble. Is is that correct? Does anybody remember? Yeah, it's I not. Never saw the one. This one, this one is like this. This one is like like swiping at each other with with pocket knives. And it, I, I mean, I guess there's a little bit that's like it's a little stunty, I guess. But that like um, they're it's like a, a a group of people, you know, egging on to two guys in the middle. It's not like they all have their forearms extended and are doing like you know snaps in the in the rhythm of the music. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So like. You know the, the, that really kind of gets to the heart, I think, of the, the creative differences, uh, are the the art, the, the differences in the in the artistic projects of um, of these two movies, right? Like, you know, the, the first one being like, you know, very very presentational, and this one, like, you know, um, trying to bring, uh, for lack of a better word, a realism to uh, to, to everything that we see, um, and. I think before before we wrap this up, I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about like Tony in particular, his character, and um, the violent past that was uh, created out of whole cloth, I believe, for this movie. Right. So, um, you know, just to catch everyone up to speed here, right? Um, in this new version of it, we learned that Tony um, was not just a member of the Jets, um, but also like you know, beat someone nearly within an inch of his life, was sent to jail for it. Um, and has been released from, from, from prison and is like, you know, very specifically, you know, he's, he tells Maria, he's trying to leave his life of violence behind. Um, and he fails miserably <laughs> in, in doing so. And, you know, and, and, and the violence of this is like, you know, I'd say like, it's, 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 it's got gore, right? You know, there's like quite a decent amount of blood. 
um, his face gets all messed up, um, you know, and it, it is done not in kind of like a stage makeup kind of way. It is done um, in a way that suggests real violence. Um, and like that, that, that through line there, right. is not done. It is not at all in the music. Um, it's, uh, it, it is like very much like a cinematic move to make all of this work here. Um, and, and, and like, I'd be curious to hear how, how you guys think about this because like a lot of that backstory is accomplished, you know, um, through expository dialogue, you know, it, it breaks, you know, the, the rule that we always bring up here on, on this podcast, right? Show don't tell. Well, that was a lot of tell. Uh, the show came later on in the second half of it, um, but certainly not in the, in the initial half of it. I thought it was all um, compelling and effective, but uh, would love to hear your opinions on that as well. I mean, it really changes. It really changes what you think of, of Tony, right? That the reason that riff is like, come on, Tony, you got to come to the rumble is not just because riff is like, you know, this is his bro, but because Tony is a dangerous guy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it, it also, it, it would be a very interesting production of Romeo and Juliet where, it, where it's like, oh, like, don't don't cross Romeo. He's the main Montague enforcer, didn't you realize? <laughs> but, um, I, don't, I don't know if, I, I think that it, it worked for me um, and it made some of the stuff that goes on with Tony more more believable in a sort of grimly tragic way that like well violence was always going to come back for him rather than in the like the stage version of it like tony's the good one right he hasn't been violent and yet he's just like because he's in this uh this demographic basically like violence is going to come for him anyway which is maybe actually a grimmer message yeah Oh, God, Pete. Mm. oh, I mean, I, you could say it's, he's like the older brother in American History X now in that he sort of has his past. I mean, the only thing I was going to the thing I was going to add, which is a little different and I didn't I wanted to make give people a chance to add to what Jordan said. But I will say that uh, the Egyptian kings were a real gang and they really killed a 15 year old kid uh, right before West Side Story came out. Um, and, and I can link to a news story about it. But there were a rash of these killings. uh in the, in the uh, you know, these sort of teen gang neighborhoods. Um, I don't think the Chets and the Sharks were real ones, but the Egyptian Kings and the Dragons were real ones. Um, and they, there were 8,000 of these kids running around killing each other. Uh, I mean, obviously they weren't all killing each other, but, um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's rough, right? Because um, you, they never say who the Egyptian Kings are. That, that, I think that's something that sticks with me from that backstory. They're never like, oh, the Egyptian kings were black. Right? Pro- probably weren't even Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and I'm not sure that other gang were even members of the Yankees. They, they were a gang of aristocratic, Ptolemaic Greek, <laughs> Greeks from Alexandria <laughs> who happened to rule Egypt despite not being from it. No, they, they were as the Egyptian kings they were came, from, yeah, they're, they're they were main, from the Luxor in Las Vegas. They their main, their main weapon lost. was the the papyrus scroll yeah. and the the reed pen sharpened to a very yes. fine nib. Yes, they they were, they were they were from Memphis is where they were from. That's why they called themselves Egyptian kings. Um, <laughs> they were uh, they were King Tut's flunkies from the Batman show, and after he went away, they had they were at loose ends. Yeah, but like think about it, it's it's. Tony basically is like, well, I almost killed this black kid and I, I could have done it and, and I didn't. Um, 
that changes the whole characteristic of what's going on. I mean, other than just saying like, oh, he's a member of the Egyptian kings, that the alienation gives you a sense of distance from what exactly he did. Um, this kid is in a lot of trouble mentally and is probably not in a great situation to make like lifelong decisions to run away with a girl that he just met. <laughs> right? Like, like what is going on with this kid? He is so deeply disturbed um, and he's yeah, trying and to hold it together. But he's it's, so frantic and is like really lost it at the end as well, which is that that was a really good piece of acting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think it all I wouldn't say it undermines the romance between uh, Tony and Maria, but it's like. Man, they're in deep, right? Like, if anything, Maria isn't in deep enough. Um, sure, her, but I, I think she's meant to be callow, right? Like the the point of this, and it, this is wrong to say in in a musical that tries to like deepen every aspect of the thing and kind of give people a reason, you know, at least give give a little more dimensionality uh, to all of the characters in their kind of social and economic situations. But like that, you know, she she's. Uh, she's kind of her, her function is not exactly to have a personality, you know, and that's not, uh, um, and so in, in that, I'm not sure what they could have done, you know, to give her, I'm not sure what they could have done to give her more the way they gave some people more to give some other people more. Uh, because, you know, when she said, when her lyrics are like, you know, I love him, everything he is, I am too. It, it's, it doesn't leave a ton of wiggle room. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe I'm being too defensive of the of the movie and the kind of the totally legit criticism that that you bring up. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not a sexist trope. I'm. I'm just saying it's our sexist trope. Well, I mean, whatever. I'm just dreaming about ways that the movie could have been different. Yeah. Um. I mean, by the way, the story I was telling was in Washington Heights, and it happened around a public swimming pool where the white gangs were segregationist and were trying to keep the black kids from swimming in the swimming pool. And the black kids murdered a white kid because they thought that he was part of the gang that was keeping them out of the swimming pool. And and West Side Story would be very different if that was the story of what was happening, right? Like, uh, so I, I mean, <laughs> well, I guess it just it would pull in a whole different vocabulary of, of uh, symbolism because you don't think of those sort of things as happening in New York City, right? Um, and uh, but they did. And um, yeah, and I guess Kushner and, and Spielberg really try to bring you just to the brink of considering all of those sort of horrible circumstances and choices that people made to do terrible things to people that were their neighbors. Um, and uh, um, and yet the music is still there. And, you know, as Jordan points out, Bernstein is there. Right. And, and just as much as the lyrics of the songs are there. And uh, although Spielberg, did you guys feel like Spielberg mixed out the Bernstein a lot? Like you would be in a scene and there would be the Bernstein would be going like the instrumental orchestral stuff would be going and he would like bring it way out at times, almost as if like the pit orchestra was kind of caught across the street with a car coming by. But there were like ways in which like the the diegetic noise of the situation would interact with the orchestral music in a way that felt uh, like it privileged the background music less than other movie musicals generally do. Sure. I mean, it's supposed, um, I mean, the music is supposed to be the, the, like the dynamism of the neighborhood and the kind of the, the clash of all the, of all the sounds and the bustling and, and all the stuff that is, uh, you know, discordant at times, but beautiful, beautiful in its own way. So, you know, mixing it with some like vroom, vroom of cars going by is not, 
I don't know. It's not the worst idea in the world, but it, you felt like it was to the detriment of the score. No, no, I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. But I was curious. I wanted to ask the musicologist because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I was. I remember. I mean, yeah. I think I think that you're right. And part of it is it's just sort of an awkward thing about trying to take a musical that was written for the stage, especially one like this, where like the music is kind of storied, and then make a movie version out of it. Because movies, like movies, will put very careful, very sort of. Um, uh, polite and uh, obliging music behind big scenes of dialogue. Because you can do that. You can mix it carefully, you can write it carefully, and it juices it up and everything. When the music is playing in West Side Story, generally, like it's music time. Uh, so you, you don't have it under a lot of the big scenes and it makes it like, it's a slightly weird experience because there is all of this music, but then there are other like confrontations and things that are going on where you sort of expect there to be music but it's very awkward to ask somebody to be like, okay, now add a little bit onto Bernstein here, right? You know, do you try to make it sound like Bernstein? That's probably a bad idea. Do you have it be, you know, do they have it sound like Hans Zimmer? That's probably a terrible idea. So the kind of like, uh, just sort of pulling the music out or uh, or having the, the sound of the city stand in, I think, is like, that's some of what you're noticing is just sort of these awkward, awkward uh, scenes that wouldn't be awkward in a stage version. Uh, but like inevitably get a little bit, a little bit awkward on film where you expect the music to be sort of doing a different job slightly. Spielberg is so known for his sound. So him not having done a musical before, I'm really interested in learning more about the technique that he chose, the, the sort of why, how did he handle mixing the different levels, the different sort of tracks to put together the soundtrack for this movie? Because I, I have a feeling that it's going to be really impressive if we were to actually find out about it. Um, but I don't know. I also got to see the theater instead of on my TV where I couldn't understand what it was saying. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I would also say that like one of the things that makes this uh, work is that Spielberg shoots a dance scene the way that he would shoot a fight scene with like the same kind of clarity and, uh, and comprehensibility. And I'm sort of imagining like, who's the guy who did all the, the Bourne movies? Greengrass? Greengrass is, yeah, I'm imagining Greengrass. Oh, Matt Damon, West Side, guys. Yeah, yes, right. I'm imagining Matt Damon's West Side Story and just shuddering. <laughs> it's the kind of, yeah, the, the shaky camera, you know, the shaky camera is the... Sean, you know, Sean Ryan's The West Side Shield. <laughs> <laughs> Where are the sharks? Where are the sharks? All right, we gotta bring it. We gotta bring it. Bring it home. Uh, well, uh, we've we've discovered that there is a place for us, gentlemen. It's on the podcast. So I want to thank you for uh, speaking with me about West Side Story, Mark. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. I want to thank everyone for listening uh, to this. Would love to hear more about what you think in the uh, in the comments on the show notes for this episode. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Your favorite musical uh, musical podcast. We'll watch. Uh, uh, more movie musical, all movie musicals, musicals, all musicals, all <laughs> all of it, Kevin. All Come to our it. Discord. Tell us what would be the funniest musical for us to joke that we're doing next week. It's <laughs> anyway, cats. Right. cats. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, probably not that, but we'll be back next week with something. And until then, you can the visit Super Bowl. us. Oh, that's a good that's a good point. Uh, tomorrow, next week is Super Bowl Sunday, so uh, Pete Fenzel, the a, great a nar- portion of which will be a musical. Yes, <laughs> and Pete Fenzel, the great narrativizer of Super Bowls, will uh, tell us what the uh, what the commercials say about our our society. You have that to look forward to uh, next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at overthinking.com. 
where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. No, you guys can do the Super Bowl. I'm doing cats. <laughs> Why don't you do the puppy bowl halftime, kitty halftime show, and you can do both? Oh, the Bengals are playing. So there will be cats at the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it is destiny. <laughs> mm.